Welcome to Optivate, a podcast for mobile marketers brought to you by Remerge. Take a short break from your screen and listen to what's working in mobile marketing and what's not, straight from the people who are doing it now. Are you ready? Let's get started. Everyone, you are tuned in to yet another episode of the Activate Podcast brought to you by Reburge. Today, I'm your host, Tommy. And today, as is always the case, I have a fantastic guest on the line with me. I'm particularly excited about this guest because they have really interesting experience and background. Today, they're a CEO and I always get stoked when I get to talk to a CEO because it gives me a false sense of importance in this world. But he's a CEO and he's also written a really, really cool book called How Not to Suck at Marketing. So I'm really, really stoked to dive into all things marketing with this person. And without further ado, today's guest is Jeff Perkins, who is the CEO at Park Mobile. Jeff, what's up? Hey, Tommy, thanks for having me on your podcast. So uh, it was a good intro. I I don't know if you should be too impressed with me (laughs) or too excited, but just to manage your expectations, but I'm looking forward to the conversation. I'm impressed. Whenever I look at so like someone at a CEO level, I immediately think like, how are they doing that? I manage a small team of six sellers. Anything beyond that would be very, very challenging for me to cope with and to have to look over multiple departments, be it finance or sales or marketing, whatever the case may be, my plate would be too full. So I'm always in awe of people who are able to compartmentalize it to some degree. And you're obviously one of those people who can do that. The secret I learned long ago is hire good people and everything takes care of itself. And so that's the key. I have a great team. They are all highly competent. They're able to run their functional areas very well. I could stay at the higher level strategic place and they could run the day-to-day. And then I come in and help where I'm needed. Don't sell yourself short. I probably at points in my career, I could never imagine being a CEO either, but like anything, you don't know what you can do until you try. So this is my first CEO gig though. So I wouldn't say I'm a seasoned chief executive quite yet. I'm still learning every day. You are a chief nevertheless. Was this always a career aspiration of yours to get to that level? And even more so to, I guess, a double question. Was it a career aspiration of yours to get to a level of being a CEO and what y'all do at Park Mobile, which we'll dive into in a bit, but was that an industry that always fascinated you? So I never really thought about wanting to be CEO or I didn't necessarily have this goal of wanting to get that title. Yeah, I did have a goal at one point of wanting to be the CMO. So that was really a career goal. I wanted to be the senior marketing leader within an organization. I kind of set that goal when I was more of a a mid-level marketing manager and then was able to achieve that. And once I achieved that goal, you want to keep growing your career. And I always looked at it that I, I want to keep on as the CMO, but I want to expand my portfolio and have an even bigger impact on the business. And as I did that, opportunities opened up for me. So I was came into Park Mobile in 2017 as the CMO, and then they made me the CMO slash head of product when our head of product left. So then I said marketing and product, and then our CTO left and I took on the technology team. So now I was marketing product and technology, even though the technology was a totally, I was just helping out in the interim when we were trying to find a new CTO. I do not aspire to be the CTO or CIO of an organization that's well beyond my capabilities, but I just kept expanding my portfolio and owning kind of a bigger and bigger chunk of the organization. 
And so when our previous CEO decided to make a change and pursue a new opportunity, the organization said, well, Jeff's managing like 75% of the organization right now, probably makes sense to give him the other 25%. So I guess the point is I just put myself in a position through not really wanting to be the CEO, but wanting to make the biggest impact possible on the business and wanting to expand my portfolio and things all kind of worked out for themselves. Yeah, I guess my initial question is, it could be off-putting in some way because it obviously is not a vanity thing that drives your ambition. It's a desire to see your business succeed. And in that, gaining knowledge in multiple departments allows you and the business to get there. And, and that's essentially how you've arrived at where you are. You've made a few jumps along the way. You said CMO, then CMO plus head of product, then acting CTO in some ways, or at least looking over the tech side of the business. Now CEO, what's the biggest jump that you had to make from where you were to where you are today in terms of what you had to learn or what you maybe weren't ready for? Probably the biggest thing that I had to do, and it's, I'm going to answer the question in a little bit of a different way. I was at a company called autotrader.com. And a lot of people know it's the biggest classified car shopping site in the United States. And when I was at autotrader.com, I was a marketing manager. And I was at the company for five years. I started as a marketing manager. And five years later, I was still a marketing manager. And that five years, though, were really fundamental in my career because I learned how to work with a sales organization, how to build a team, how to work on the executive level. And I really formed, I think, as an executive during my time at Autotrader. The problem was I had a marketing manager title. <laughs> And so at some point when you're in an organization, sometimes it's up or out. It's like, I didn't see a path up and I wanted to be a CMO at that point. And that didn't seem to be in the cards at Autotrader. So I said, okay, I have to pursue that goal elsewhere. So then I started looking for other jobs and I was in this weird catch 22 where I had a marketing manager title. So I couldn't get VP of marketing job, even though if you looked at my resume, everything on my resume screamed VP of marketing, large team, large budget, making an impact on the business, working with executives, working with sales. I mean, it's, I had all the pieces that a company would want to hire a vice president, but I had this marketing manager title that was holding me back. And so, you know, recruiters would say, well, I can't put you up for a VP job, Jeff. You have a marketing manager title. And say, so, okay, let's do this. Put me up for a marketing manager job. And I'll find a marketing manager job where there's a clear path up and I could see a growth opportunity. And they said, okay, we'll do that. And they said, well, what's your salary range? And I told them my salary range. They're like, we well, can't, that's too much. You can't make that much as a marketing manager. And so AutoTrader was brilliant because they kept your level low, but they kept your salary high. And basically no one could leave. <laughs> and then you're in this crazy catch 22. And, but it was a good lesson, I think for anyone that wants to get to that executive level, it's not just about doing a great job. Doing a great job is actually kind of table stakes to some extent. Like you have to be good at your job. You have to show that you're able to lead a team and make impact on the business. But it was more about my personal brand and being able to define who I am to the outside world. And if anyone was looking at my resume at that time, they would just see what marketing manager and they define you as a marketing manager. So the big step for me was redefining my brand because if you don't define yourself, someone else will. And I found that hiring managers and recruiters were just defining me as a marketing manager. I was like, so how do I break out of that? I realized I had to find places where I could show what I could do. 
And so I said, all right, I'm a marketer. I should be able to build a pretty good personal brand in addition to building my corporate brand. And so I really set out to build a brand for an executive marketer. So I started speaking at conferences. I wrote a blog. I committed to writing one blog post a week for a year. And once I kind of got the machine going around building my personal brand, a lot of things started happening. The phone started ringing. Recruiters were calling me. And so I still had that manager title. But suddenly, because I was proactive, I went out there and repositioned my personal brand. I was getting all these VP of marketing offers. And so that was a good lesson that sometimes it's not just about doing the work, but it's about how you position your personal brand. It sounds like a lot of work, though, writing a blog post every week and putting yourself out there could be challenging in and of itself. There's some, some people aren't necessarily built in that way to do that. But ultimately, you think that's what really got you to have the clout that would allow you to get those roles that you were actually looking for. That was a big piece of it. Yeah. People always say it's a lot of work. And I'm not saying it's an insignificant amount of work, but if you're smart in the way you allocate your time, like I would write one blog post a week, but I would time box and say, all right, I'm going to spend an hour a week writing this thing, an hour a week. I mean, everybody has an hour a week. So those were the kind of things. And then speaking at conferences, I would already go to a lot of conferences for marketing. Marketers love going to conferences. So I would go to all these marketing conferences and I said, well, if I'm going anyway, I might as well speak. And so you put together a, a PowerPoint presentation or two, and you could use the same one at all the different conferences, as long as the audiences are different. So it wasn't as much work as it seems. One thing people always say to me, like, Jeff, I'm a bad presenter, or I'm a bad writer. And those are things maybe you need to work on. Or maybe if you practice it, maybe you'll get better. Or if presenting and writing isn't your thing, what else can you do? Maybe networking. Maybe you're a master networker. That's how you're going to build your personal brand through more one-on-one -on -one connections, not going up in front of 500 people and making a presentation or writing a blog, but just doing the one-to-one. -one. There are lots of ways to build your personal brand. I wouldn't say that, oh, the way Jeff did it is impossible because it's definitely not if I was able to do it. But I do think people really have to take it seriously because when I look on LinkedIn and I see people that like their headline on LinkedIn is like their job title. And you look at their LinkedIn experience and it's basically their resume, the bullet points from their resume. What a missed opportunity. I mean, LinkedIn is like a living, breathing work portfolio for you. You're basically just taking your boring resume and sticking it into LinkedIn. If your LinkedIn profile looks like your resume, you're doing it wrong. I always advise people like LinkedIn for a professional should be your work samples, your professional story, endorsements, recommendations presentations, blogs, articles is such a powerful tool for building your personal brand. I think really professionals have to keep that top of mind and really engage in the platform. I'll be very honest. I'm definitely the stuck my resume on LinkedIn uh, person. That's a challenging platform these days. I think if you look back maybe five, six years ago, it's not what it is today. LinkedIn is as much a social platform almost as any other platform. And there's a ton of noise there. And then the challenge is how do you shine through all that noise. And maybe you don't even need to, but maybe it's really just a platform for you to demonstrate in a more articulate and comprehensive way what your capabilities are. So yeah, it's interesting. You're right. I'm in sales. So I use it to try to make sales, honestly, more than anything. <laughs> yeah. If you're using it for sales, do me a favor. After someone connects with you on LinkedIn, within five seconds, don't send a sales solicitation note to the email box. That's like my personal pet peeve. <laughs> And it happens way too often. And it's almost to the point where I won't accept 
a LinkedIn invite from someone that has like sales development rep or business development rep in their profile. Cause it's like clockwork. What happens as soon as I accept, there's going to be like an auto message that comes in. It's like, Jeff, would you be interested in learning our SaaS solution that helps optimize blah, blah, blah. Don't do that. Try to build a real relationship. Try to have a real conversation. Actually read the LinkedIn profile of the prospect and try to lead with some kind of context and then see if there's an opportunity for you in the product. Yeah, it does become extremely transactional in that kind of anecdote that you provide. SCR connects with you and asks you if you want something and they have no idea what's actually interesting to you and they're really bothered to learn about what's interesting to you. So I would agree. It's interesting that you have a lot of viewpoints on how to build up your career. Is this something that people would learn about in your book, How Not to Suck at Marketing? Or is that specifically about marketing strategies and how someone can become a better marketer? The book is actually probably more about your career than it is just about how not to suck at marketing. And so it's been interesting to look at some of the Amazon rankings. I think it ranks maybe higher on the job hunting category <laughs> than it does on the marketing or advertising category at times. So people actually, I think that have read the book have expected it to be a little bit more about marketing and ends up being more about your career and how do you navigate a successful career in business. If you were to pin it down to some of the most valuable takeaways that someone would get out of your book, what does that look like? It's a lot of what we just discussed, right? Around personal branding and being able to express yourself in this marketplace beyond just putting your resume on a LinkedIn or whatever the case may be. Is that a core focus of this or are there other components to it that people are getting major takeaways from? The things that people have really responded to in the book are probably less about like, how do I do marketing? <laughs> how do I optimize a website or how do I do a search campaign? But it's more about some of the fundamental strategies that I talk about when approaching the job. One of the parts of the book, I really talk about kind of three fundamentals for modern marketers. So those three things are focus, flexibility, and resiliency. And I'll spend a second on each of them. So focus, like marketing is the worst when it comes to shiny objects. And if you've ever seen the Scott Brinker MarTech landscape, there's like 8,000 different MarTech tools you can buy. So smart marketers today can't get distracted by that. Smart marketers have to really focus on what's the biggest problem facing our business? How can marketing help solve that problem? And then putting 100% of your energy on that. Whatever filling in the blanks of the problem, that's what marketers have to focus on and get rid of all the other noise in the system, like ripping and replacing the CRM or, oh, how do I respond to this mean tweet? No, you got to really focus on solving the business problem. When I talk about flexibility, the point around flexibility is that marketers, I think, tend to think there's a playbook for everything. Like what I did at my last company is going to totally work at my next company. And the fact is every company, every business, every industry has very, very unique challenges. And if you go in expecting your playbook from your last company to work at your new company, you will probably be unsuccessful. And especially if you're too rigid and don't course correct along the way. So I talk a lot about the need for marketers to really, if something's not working, you better cut it really quickly and move on to the next thing. And if you're sitting there saying, well, it's going to work eventually because it worked at my last company, you're going to get fired. You have to be very flexible in the approach to the job. And the last point on resiliency, what we do is hard. We put ourselves out there a lot as marketers and nobody goes to like the CFO and criticizes the way that the balance sheet works, right? Like, oh, I don't like how you formatted your Excel table, Mr. CFO. But everyone in the organization will go to the marketer and tell them the marketing sucks. They hate the campaign and they hate the logo and they hate the tagline. As a function, it's very accessible. Everybody is a consumer of marketing. 
And so marketers have to be resilient. You have to realize that there will be a lot of opinions from people who are not experts in marketing on what you are doing. And you just have to take those hits and keep on doing what you think is the right thing. I would argue sales exists in that last piece as well, to some degree with the resiliency that it seems that when things aren't going well, some people might point at sales as the reason why in marketing I've also experienced in my career. That's a place where it will point. If we're not driving enough sales, we might say, well, marketing's not supporting us enough, for example. So it's interesting. I've always seen the two as highly analogous or running on parallel tracks in a lot of ways between marketing and sales. I almost see marketing as essentially sales, just failed a different way. Not sure how you feel about it, but I've always felt that they're pretty much close to one and the same. Yeah. One of the companies I worked at, I got hired to be the VP of marketing. And when I showed up the first day, they told me, hey, Jeff, we're also giving you a sales team. <laughs> so that was my first time managing a sales team. And what I didn't realize when you manage a sales team is you get a quota and that kind of sucks. <laughs> so here I am managing marketing, which I had a lot of experience and then sales, which I had no experience. And it ended up really being amazing because what you, one of the challenges that I think a lot of organizations have is the alignment between marketing and sales. So when I ran sales and marketing, we couldn't afford to be misaligned because I'm responsible for both. So one of the things I did was I had my marketing director who was running all of our digital campaigns talk to the sales director on a daily basis to understand how the leads were flowing in. And were there good leads or bad leads? Because oftentimes we would maybe try a new campaign and turn on some tactic and suddenly there'd be a flood of bad leads coming in. And because they were talking in real time, the sales director could then say, hey, what did you guys do? We're getting all these really spammy leads. We don't know what to do with them. Can you turn that tactic off? And then so our marketing director could immediately cut that tactic, reallocate those dollars into campaigns that were working. And the result is that you're basically optimizing in real time. And that never happens in business. Usually what happens in business is there's a quarter goes by and you have a QBR and marketing gets up and talks about how great their campaigns are and the leads are up. And then sales gets up and talks about how the pipeline sucks and all the, they're not getting any leads from marketing. And that's a whole quarter goes by. So you just wasted a quarter because nobody's talking to each other. But because we were talking every day, it made our campaigns super efficient. So we only were investing in the tactics where we were seeing like high quality leads coming to the sales guys and we were getting everything else out of the system. And so the sales guys were just flooded with really good leads and they didn't have to deal with going through a lot of spams to find the diamond in the rough. So when marketing and sales are aligned, I think good things can really happen in an organization. Oh, 100%. And in that case, it didn't seem like it required much drastic change except just, hey, you two talk to each other every day and keep iterating on your processes so that we can get good leads and, and, and alignment, ultimately. Your book, you mentioned, covers predominantly three big kind of focuses that's related to marketing, right? Focus, flexibility, and resiliency. What I'm curious about is how you've applied this to your role at Park Mobile in particular. So you mentioned the idea of focus and identifying what is the biggest problem that you're facing and how marketing might be able to solve that. Could you walk me through maybe an example of what you've experienced at somewhere like Park Mobile and how Focus allowed you to overcome that or identify what that problem was? At Park Mobile, we work with over 500 cities across the country. We are the number one app for parking in the United States. We have 31 million users. And so when you're working with all these different cities across the U.S., every city is going to want their own widget or their own feature. 
and they want something that's done this way or that way. And the thing we have been very smart about at Park Mobile is we've avoided the trap of the doing the bespoke development for every single client that we have. We have this philosophy within our product organization is that we build it once, we build it right, and we build it to scale. So if a city wants something custom, we don't always say no, but we have to make sure whatever that custom feature is can be used by every other city out there. And by having that really extreme focus, it really gets rid of all these edge cases where, oh, can you build this kind of permit system that works for this parking lot on weekends, but this parking lot on weekdays? Because there are a ton of rabbit holes you can go down within municipal parking in a city. We've been very disciplined, though. We say no to a lot more things than we say yes to. But sometimes the city comes to us and says, hey, we would like this feature. Would you consider it? And we look at it and we say, that's a really good idea. And we could see broad application. An example, we, our client at the city of uh, Miami Beach in Florida, they came to us and said, Park Mobile, we have a problem. We require everyone to download the mobile app, but we have a lot of tourists that come in from internationally into the US. They can't download the mobile app. And so then they can't pay for parking using the app. They have to go to the meter. We would prefer them to go to the app. Can you build a web app that international travelers can use? And we said, well, that's an idea that has very, very broad application across the country. And so we said, yeah, we are going to build that app. And of course, city of Miami Beach is thrilled that we're going to take in a feature request and we're going to build something for them. But that web app now is actually used by about 20% of the people paying with Park Mobile across the country. So it was a great addition to our overall product portfolio that came in from a feature request from a client. So that's the kind of thing you have to really juggle when you're running a business. If you say yes to everything, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. You're not going to get a lot done. You could experience some degree of time suck too. Like you mentioned before, if it's not scalable, if it's not something that can be applied to multiple regions of security, case 500 different cities, is it really worth your time? And ultimately it has to meet those criteria, which totally makes sense because you're going to save dev time, all your team's marketing time, resources, et cetera, et cetera. You brushed over something and it's super interesting. I think you mentioned the number is something like 31 million users. Is that accurate? That's correct. Yeah, about 31 million have downloaded the app and created an account. It's not a small number at all. Tell me how, obviously it's a massive how you get there. I guess from a marketer's perspective, what would you say was one of the most, because you spent time obviously as CMO and this is focused on marketing for this conversation for the most part, but what was maybe one of the most impactful strategies or tactics that you applied to your marketing kind of portfolio in order to help achieve that number of 31 million users? Because it's a absolutely massive number and it's 500 different cities. Maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like it'd be tough to apply one strategy across the board, but I'll let you speak and tell me what maybe you learned and what was really, really impactful for your team. It's been a really interesting journey to get to the 31 million. I joined the company in 2017. We had about 8 million at that point. So we were a lot smaller than we are today. Today, we add a million about every 30 to 35 days, just to give you a sense. So when I joined, I had this theory that we really needed to turn up the dial on uh, digital marketing and we needed to do some traditional advertising. And so we tried a lot of things. We really spent a lot of money on Google search ads. We did app store ads. We did big national radio campaign, spent a lot of money trying to see if we could move the needle on user acquisition. And at the end of the day, nothing really worked. None of those tactics really proved out like a substantial ROI. But so why have we grown? We've grown because whenever we launch a city, 
we put up these bright green signs. And as soon as the signs go up, people realize they could pay with Park Mobile and the transactions start flowing in and the users start getting acquired. What we realize is all these other advertising tactics, really, they're probably not working. And why aren't they working well? Because no one ever thinks about parking until they need to park. So the most important touch point with a consumer is point of purchase. So signage is more important than anything else, which is great because signage is super cheap. And we have like 10 million little billboards on all the parking meters and around the parking spots all over the country. So it's just great brand presence, but it's not that expensive. And then you don't have to spend a ton of money on all these other tactics that normally companies would use to acquire customers. We have a competitor in our industry and they're spending like 20, $30 million a year to acquire users because they're doing parking reservations in garages. So a little bit of a different business from ours, even though we offer reservations as well. But we have all this on-street parking and we have signs everywhere. So that's our acquisition channel, really high impact signage in the cities where we operate, and then getting as many cities on Park Mobile as we can, because the more cities, the more users, the more users, the more cities. And we've created this very efficient flywheel for the company. So we're able to acquire a million users every 30 days, but our cost of acquisition is basically pennies because we don't have to spend a ton of money to acquire them. And so it's a really efficient marketing engine we've built. This is the first time I've ever on this podcast heard someone say that the way that we, for our app, drove growth was by putting signs essentially on the street or right near parking. But yeah, it totally makes sense. I think about it in my mind, what I always hear on this podcast, not what I always hear, but what I very frequently hear is we invested a lot in Facebook, we invested a lot of Google, Apple search, all that stuff. But to your point, Facebook, cool, but ultimately there's no intent behind that. And like you said, I don't think about parking because I don't know the next time I'm going to need parking. Honestly, half the time it happens because all of a sudden I got to go run an errand and I go somewhere and I realize I don't park and pass in that part of the city, whatever the case may be. And so really finding people in those moments of need is what drives a lot of the acquisition for you. My question though, I imagine this is one of the challenges that your business would face, right? Is that same use case that is provided means that my use of your app is not consistent, likely, meaning I might use it. You don't get people necessarily parking every single day of the week, though I'm sure there's obviously those kinds of consumers, but I'd imagine a significant enough portion of the audience uses it and maybe doesn't come back for X period of time, which raises the question of how do you retain your users? Do you find that once they use it once, they'll always come back to it? Or is there a challenge in driving that repeat use and that retention? Yeah, so we have a lot of what we call the one and done users. So people who live in a city that where Park Mobile is not available or needed because there's just there's parking everywhere and they go to a city like Miami Beach and they learn about it there, they use it once and then they never use it again. So there's a healthy amount of those people out there. And so we know that we know that part of our challenge is that we can't make them park if they're not going to park. There's no magic wand we can wave that would create a parking need for someone that doesn't have a parking need. But What's key for us is that once we get people in, we give them the full understanding of all the ways they can use Park Mobile. So, okay, you use Park Mobile to park on the street. All right, that's great, one time. But did you know that you can also use Park Mobile in these five cities around where you are right now? So it's accepted everywhere. Oh, and did you also know you can use Park Mobile at the stadium? So if you're booking for a sporting event or a concert, you can pre-book your parking reservation, drive right to the garage. You don't have to worry about where you're going to park when you're going to the game. So it's extending the ways they can use Park Mobile. It's extending the places where they can use Park Mobile. 
And so that's created a lot more retention for us. So a lot of people during COVID, they deleted the app because they weren't going in, they weren't leaving the house. But we've seen a lot of those people come back now that everyone's going back out into cities again. It's only going to grow because the one thing we know is that people prefer to make a payment on their phone versus the hardware. We know that 100%. So we see client after client, city after city, once Park Mobile gets adopted in the city, the use of Park Mobile goes above 50% and the use of the hardware goes below 50% and it only widens over time. Some of our most mature markets were 80% adoption versus the hardware. And so people prefer to make a mobile payment. So it's almost inevitable that as we go forward, more and more people are going to have the app, use the app. And we do a lot of win back campaigns. So we know that people sometimes use the app. They go dormant for six months. That's actually a big deal now with COVID because we had so many people who were heavy users just stop using the app altogether. So now we're trying to re-engage a lot of those users. It's just constant exercise of messaging and reminders and trying to be engaged with our users and help them understand all the places where they can use Park Mobile, really trying to help them on their mobility journey, but at the same time, not annoying them because that's important too. Nobody really wants to hear from their parking app. We know that. One of the mistakes I made early on when I joined Park Mobile, it was when the Houston Astros won the World Series back in 2017, 2018. Houston is a client of ours. And so we just did a push message that said, congratulations, Houston Astros, use Park Mobile if you're going to the parade. We did something like that in a push message. And we got so much social media hate for that. They're like, why are you doing this, Park Mobile? You've ruined my day. <laughs> or I hate the Houston Astros. Why would you send this to me? So it really upset people. But it made us aware that, all right, we have to be careful with our communications. And so whenever we do a push message, especially in the app, it's all about giving them information to improve the mobility journey. So an example is if you have the app on your phone and you're flying from Boston to Philadelphia and you get to the airport at Philadelphia and you go to the rental car place and you get your rental car, we'll geofence the rental car area. And so when you drive out of that rental car area, we know you have a car so we'll do a push message that says, hey, Park Mobile is available all over the city of Philadelphia, so use it to pay for parking wherever you go. And people never complain about that because it's actually useful and it helps in their overall mobility journey. So that's really the key here, right, is looking for very specific triggers. Someone flies from one place to another, needs parking. Maybe someone's at a stadium and the game's just starting, the game's over. That might be a good time to say, hey, or maybe they're going to the stadium. Who knows? Finding those users in their moments is, seems like a really fundamental key to how your team executes its marketing strategy in general. You're not doing, I mean, there is a form of branding here, but you're not necessarily investing in commercials and radio a ton or big Facebook ad moments, right? It's really at that moment where you need to park or you're considering a parking situation, that's when Park Mobile is going to try and get in front of you. That's exactly it. But one thing we do with our user base, especially in local markets where we have people, because a lot of our users, they use it primarily to park on street. They don't even know that they can make parking reservations at the stadium or arena. So we do a lot of marketing to our database around that. So if you, we know you have Park Mobile, we know you park in certain parts of the city we're going to let you know that, hey, here's what's going on in Atlanta this weekend. There's a Hawks game at State Farm Arena. There's a Falcons game at Mercedes-Benz Stadium. There's a Georgia Tech game at Bobby Dodd. Here's all the ways you can reserve parking with Park Mobile. We have a very targeted group of people that we know are living in the city. We don't necessarily know if they're Hawks fans or Falcons fans or Tech fans, 
but we're showing them ways they can park if they're going to go to those events over the weekend. And again, those emails get very high engagement and are very low on subscriber rate. So we think they're working pretty well. In that example, you go broad enough for the likelihood that one of those teams or one of those events will be interesting to a consumer, obviously goes up dramatically. And ultimately it plays a two prong as two real functions. It's that information providing, but it's also demonstrating Park Mobile's vast capabilities or vast accessibility, I should say. And it's doing those two things at once, which is really valuable for the consumers, obviously. You must have a really good CRM team and just marketing team in general, but just you describing that requires a pretty comprehensive understanding of what's happening in all these cities, like on almost a day-to-day basis, I'd imagine, or maybe on a week-to-week basis, no matter what the basis is, that's a massive amount of information to have to bring into your kind of marketing strategies. Is this the core focus of your marketing team? Is it CRM and then collecting this data and bringing it to the users? So we have a team really focused on engagement, really, because fortunately we don't have to focus that much on acquisition because that kind of takes care of itself. So the focus of the marketing team is really on engagement. And what's great is the cost of engagement is much lower because it's the team just doing the work. And so we know, we always look on every week, what are the big events coming up at the venues that are clients of Park Mobile? What other things are going on? And so we're promoting those events. We've also gotten very smart about the kinds of events that we promote, the ones that we know are going to be more popular. So an example is, for example, Dua Lipa was just at State Farm Arena. Now, we didn't do a ton of reservations for Dua Lipa because she appeals to probably a a younger, more millennial. They're more likely to Uber or take the public transportation. So there wasn't as many people making parking reservations. But when Elton John came here, it was like everyone was driving in from the suburbs (laughs) and no one was taking public transportation. No one was Ubering. And so we sold a ton of parking spots. Same thing goes for Disney on Ice. We love Disney on Ice because what's Disney on Ice? It's parents with minivans trekking in from the suburbs into the city to take their kids to Disney on Ice. And they're not leaving parking to chance. They want to park as close as they can to the arena. They want to reserve their spot in advance. So we sell a ton of reservations to that as well. So we found the events that we think are the key events. And so we track both those events as they're traveling around the country to make sure, okay, we know Elton John's a big seller. Let's make sure we're always promoting Elton John. We know Disney on Ice is a big seller. Sometimes, but like Dua Lipa, we know we don't do a ton for Dua Lipa. So we're, we won't waste time on that unless it's at a venue that we think we can do a lot of reservations for. You kind of learn as you go and you try a lot of things and you see what works. NFL football is great because it's one game a week. So we don't have to, we're doing a lot of work to prep. MLB, NBA is harder, NHL is harder because there's games every night that you have to promote. But we've done a pretty good job figuring out how to stay on top of it. We have all those reservations are in our system. So we just look in our system we'll create campaigns. And then in our database, we use a tool called Braze, where we're able to segment audiences. So if we know you're in Atlanta or certain parts of Atlanta, we can get really segmented. We could geofence the arena. So it gives a lot of tools that we can use to engage our users and get them to book a reservation before they're going to an event. It's amazing. It still sounds like so much information and so much events have to process, but your team's obviously got it nailed. And I think, yeah, it makes sense that the Elton John concerts and the Disney on Ice absolutely kill it for you. I was going to say something like Eric Clapton would kill it for you, and I'm sure he does as well if he ever comes around. So one thing that you said that was funny, and I'm going to let you go soon, but you said Houston is a client of ours. The city of Houston is a client of yours. 
is that the sales motion here for Park Mobile? You have to sell into a city or municipality or something like that in order to get access to, I guess, their street parking. Is that how it works? And if so, how cumbersome and challenging is it to make it happen? Yeah. So cities are our primary clients. So we have a, a very experienced sales team that knows how to sell into municipal cities. In some cities, you're selling into a transportation department or a parking department. Sometimes you're selling directly to the local mayor, depending on the size of the city. But we've been at this for a while, so we kind of know how cities operate and we know what you have to do to make an effective sale to a city. The challenge with cities is that oftentimes you're driven by RFP process. Uh, and so you do have to go through a pretty extensive proposal and competitive bidding situation. Really? Yeah. Any big city that you work with, they're going to force you through a competitive bidding process. And so that's part of how we operate. Our sales guys are, they know everyone. It's a relatively small industry. I mean, it's a couple thousand people. So we're very involved with the trade organizations and parking. There's the three main ones that we work with, three big trade shows every year. So we're always at the shows and a lot of regional shows. But once you really know the parking industry and you know the key players in the parking industry, it's just making sure you're staying top of mind, you're bringing value to the table every time you're meeting, and then you're waiting for the opportunity when the next RFP is going to come up. Or what's more common for us is that we're defending. So we've been in a lot of contracts that are about five years, which is nice. So the deals last a very long time when you're with municipal clients, but we've had a couple of big clients come up for RFP. So those are very important to us that we're able to make the case of why they should stay with Park Mobile and really make the case that we've been a good partner and we obviously want to retain all the business that we have. We have a very high retention rate right now and we want to keep it that way. Awesome. I'm sure you're well on your way to doing that. And 31 million users, eight to 31 million from 2017 to 2022, getting about a million every 30 days. That's truly incredible and a testament to a wonderful team and product you all built there. So Jeff, thanks so much. I would love to have you back sometime because I feel like you could have gone probably for three hours and I would have learned. So it would have been like a class with a professor. You were really, really insightful. Everything from the personal branding piece to marketing strategy. So thank you so very much for joining us today on Aptivate. And I hope we can have you back sometime. Thanks, Tommy. It's great to be with you. For all our listeners, today's guest is Jeff Perkins, who is the CEO at Park Mobile. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for taking a break with us and listening to our weekly episode of Activate by Remerge. If you enjoyed what you heard, leave us a five-star review on iTunes and tell your friends about the podcast. The more people you tell, the further we can spread these awesome mobile marketing insights. See you next week.